There's some days when we wake up and we know that as soon as our feet hit the ground, when we get out of bed, that our feet are going to have to take us to a place that we know that we don't want to go. It, it, it can lead to a sense of despair and foreboding in our hearts. Your stomach hurts. Your head hurts as you anticipate what you think will come ahead uh, throughout the course of the day, whether it's uh, impossible circumstances at work, whether it's surgery, a treatment for cancer, conflict in a relationship that you have with somebody else, to opposition or persecution from friends and family that would make fun of you for trusting in, in Jesus Christ. When we don't have any strength and we feel particularly weak and despairing, through Christ we can go to the Lord for help. He alone is the strength of his people in the midst of a dark and, and empty world. Now, this is uh, what we're considering this morning from Psalm chapter 28. So if you have your Bible again, I'll be reading from Psalm chapter 28, verses 1 through 9. Of David, to you, Lord, I call. You are my rock. Do not turn a deaf ear to me. For if you remain silent, I will be like those who go down to the pit. Hear my cry for mercy as I call to you for help, as I lift up my hands toward your most holy place. Do not drag me away with the wicked, with those who do evil, who speak cordially with their neighbors, but harbor malice in their hearts. Repay them for their deeds and for their evil work. Repay them for what their hands have done and bring back on them what they deserve. Because they have no regard for the deeds of the Lord, and what his hands have done, he will tear them down and never build them up again. Praise be to the Lord, for he has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him, and he helps me. My heart leaps for joy, and with my song I praise him. The Lord is the strength of his people, a fortress of salvation for his anointed one. Save your people and bless your inheritance. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. This is God's holy, inerrant, authoritative word. I pray that God would write its eternal truth upon each of our hearts. And here's the big idea of the text. God is the strength of his people, judging the wicked and giving eternal protection and joy to his people. And I have three points. Number one, God is the rock of his people. Two, God repays the wicked. And then number three, God is the strength of his people. God is the rock of his people, he repays the wicked, and he is the strength of his people. Number one, God is the rock of his people. We are weak, right? We need help. We need a solid protection from the attacks that we face, whether it's from our own sin and our flesh, whether it's the world or the devil. We need a firm foundation to establish our steps upon, and we need a reliable source of sustenance when we feel that God has abandoned us. This is what it means that God is a rock for his people. Protection, foundation, sustenance. Protection, foundation, sustenance. There, there will be a time in each of our lives when no one will be able to help you. There will be a time in each of our lives when nobody will be able to protect us. There will be a time in our lives when no one will be able to establish us on a firm foundation or to sustain us. We sing this truth in the hymn, uh, Abide With Me. 
Abide with me. It's a prayer to God. Abide with me. Fast falls the eventide. The darkness deepens. Lord, with me abide. When other helpers fail and comforts flee, help of the helpless, oh, abide with me. This is what King David is facing here in this text. Look at verses 1 through 2 of David. To you, Lord, I call. You are my rock. Do not turn a deaf ear to me. For if you remain silent, I will be like those who go down to the pit. Hear my cry for mercy as I call to you for help as I lift up my hands toward your most holy place. Everything from David's words to his posture express his helplessness. Right? This is the normal posture of prayer in the Bible. The lifting up of hands that we see described here. Like a humbled beggar that's lifting up a hand to a passerby. Or like children lifting up their helpless hands for help to their mother or their father. David lifted up his hands towards the most holy place in the tabernacle where God dwelled at the center of his people upon the mercy seat that sat upon the Ark of the Covenant, God's very throne. He knows that Yahweh alone is his help in the midst of his utter helplessness. Our hearts seek to interpret our, our circumstances. Our hearts seek to interpret our experiences either as favor or disfavor from God. If things are going well in our lives, then we interpret that as we are doing well. We are blessed of God. If things are going poorly according to our standards, then we interpret that as a curse from God. This is a mistake, though, because correlation does not equate to causation. We hear that, that phrase a lot in statistics. David's heart and mind is looking at his suffering, and he's tempted to believe that God is not his rock that God doesn't hear the cries of his people, that God's promise of salvation through his promise of an offspring is silent. On this historical side that we live in, on the other side of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our hearts can be tempted in this same way that David was prior to the incarnation of Christ. We look at everything that we're going through and our hearts are tempted to think that God doesn't hear us and that God is silent. This is a, an applicable psalm to us. David's confronting his feelings with the truth of what he knows about God, not what his feelings are telling him is true. We should follow David's example in this. One of God's promises to his people in Deuteronomy 4.7 is that he is near to the point that they can always have him near to call upon him. Right? That God would hear them. That he is there. God hears the cries of his people. Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. This is before God saved Israel out of Egypt. And it said this as they were in slavery under Pharaoh. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. God's word tells us that God hears the groaning of his people. So follow, brothers and sisters and friends, follow David's example here, and confront your feelings with what you actually know to be true. Don't turn a deaf ear to me. Hear my cry for mercy as I call to you for help. The second fear that David expresses here 
is that God is silent. The first is that, that God wouldn't hear. He's deaf. The second is that he is dumb, silent. Silent to keep his covenant promise to establish David's throne to bring a savior. Silent to save David, not merely from enemies in this world, but also from his own sin. Look at verse 1 again. For if you remain silent, I will be like those who go down to the pit. Now the pit here, it's not merely the shadowy place of death that is referred to in the Old Testament as Sheol or Sheol in a general sense, but the place where the wicked are consigned to God's wrath, God's curse, God's damnation. At the end of verse 9, the salvation that David hopes in is an eternal salvation, a forever salvation. So it seems that the pit that David here fears is the forever eternal just condemnation or damnation of God for sin. That he would be swept away with sinners. We'll consider this in the next verses as well. David has heaven and hell in view in his mind here. David looks at his suffering. He sees his persecution, his trials. He sees the opposition that is coming against him. And he's tempted to believe that God's promise of eternal salvation for sin is lost. But his prayer demonstrates how we ought to confront temptations of unbelief like this. Confront what you feel with what you know. This world is filled with the darkness of sin, and we may face a darkness and a wickedness from others that may even lead to our death. But this kind of suffering does not mean that God is deaf to hearing our cries or silent to speak hope through his covenant promises of his eternal rescue from his just judgment. We may not feel it in our hearts, but God is always with his people. God is their rock of protection and the solid rock that forms a solid foundation for their feet. But God is also a rock in another sense, in the way that he sustains his people, not only in terms of protection, of a foundation to stand upon, but a sustenance, a sustaining, a rock that sustains his people in the midst of their feeling of being abandoned in the midst of a wilderness, of a howling wilderness of this world. Confessing God as a rock brings to mind Exodus chapter 17. God brought Israel out of Egypt into the wilderness, right? And then remember there that while they're in the wilderness, Israel began to fight with Moses because they didn't have water, right? And the text tells us that their quarreling revealed that they didn't believe that Yahweh, the one true and living God that saved them from oppression in Egypt, was with them in Exodus chapter 17, verse 7. So God commanded Moses to strike a rock, and life-giving water flowed out from that rock. This proved that God was with them, even when they didn't feel his presence. The New Testament applies this passage to Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, it says, All in Israel drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. To David's mind, and to the mind of the Jews, to Israel, Having God as a rock is a reminder that God is with them and that he will keep his covenant promises to save them and not only protect them, not only give them a firm foundation to stand upon in their lives, but he will sustain them with life-giving water that flows out from the rock, ultimately the offspring that was promised to David, the son of David, Jesus Christ. As Israel sang this song, Psalm 28, through the ages, they confessed their hope of God being their rock. And this has been powerfully fulfilled and proved in God's giving of his son, Jesus Christ, 
as the only rock that is able to sustain us by being struck in our place in order to provide a living water that wells up to eternal life. Number two, God repays the wicked. God is the rock of his people. God repays the wicked. Confessing God as a rock of protection, foundation, sustenance to his people has a humbling application to those who are not God's people. This is what David meant in verse 1. For if you remain silent, I will be like those going down to the pit. He fleshes this out more specifically in verses 3 through 5. Look at them there. Verse 3. Do not drag me away with the wicked, with those who do evil, who speak cordially with their neighbors, but harbor malice in their hearts. Repay them for their deeds and for their evil work. Repay them for what their hands have done and bring back on them what they deserve. Because they have no regard for the deeds of the Lord and what his hands have done, he will tear them down and never build them up again. Again, God is a rock of protection, a foundation, and a sustaining, a source of sustenance for his people. But God as a rock is an offense to the wicked. It's an offense to the wicked, and he will repay the wicked according to what they have done, what they deserve. First implication of this is look at how David describes coming what, what's coming against him. Verse 3, wicked. Verse 3 and 4, those who do evil. Verse 3, those who speak cordially or speak peace. The word there is shalom. Those who speak peace but harbor malice or evil. In the things that they, uh, in, in the things that uh, they are doing that are wrong before God, they don't care about what God has done. Right? They say there is peace, but they harbor malice in their hearts. They say peace, but they plan violence in opposition. They seem to be cut of the Iowa nice cloth, kind, moral, civil, respectful of their of their neighbor, perhaps. They proclaim peace and unity, but their hearts cling to division. They preach peace, but they cling to deception. They preach peace, but they cling to sin and wickedness. Notice that the focus isn't only on behavior, though, but on the intentions of the heart. But second, look at how God will respond to the wicked. Verse 3, he will drag or take them away. Uh, verse 4, he will repay them according to what they deserve. Verse 5, He, Yahweh, the one true and living God, will tear them down, destroy, tear down or destroy them, never to bring them up again, in verse 5. Friends, God is just. He will repay all men and women according to what they have done, both in the sin that they have intentionally harbored in their hearts, their desire to sin, that harboring of wickedness and deceit and evil in their hearts, but also the actions that they have taken that express their, that they're the expression of the intentions of their hearts. And again, even as the salvation is forever, at the end of verse 9, an equal just repaying of the wicked for what they have done is the equal and opposite of that forever damnation. God's judgment, eternal wrath. This is the pit, again, that David fears up in verse 1. David fears that when God's judgment falls upon the wicked in a, a just eternal repayment for the sin that they have cherished in their hearts and the sins that they have performed and the ways that they have lived, that he will be swept away with them. 
Verse 3, don't drag me away with the wicked. David knows that he's a sinner. And he knows that what he deserves, uh, it, the same judgment of even the, the wicked people that are coming against him. He deserves eternal conscious torment, God's wrath for his sin. But again, he trusts God's promise to save him. But you can see how he's wavering. He struggles with that assurance as he walks through the text. He's dealing with the log in his own eye before he deals with the wickedness in the eye of God's enemies. This is, uh, in this, we remember that when we see sin in the world that's around us and people who hate God and his people, we should remember what our sins deserve first. We should do some self-examination before we deal with the sins that we see outside of us. We should humbly confess our sins first and continually lay ourselves at the mercy of God in Jesus Christ, begging of him to forgive us through the death and resurrection of, of Jesus. Our chief concern isn't the sin of everybody else, right? That's that They're committing, but mine, my, my own sin. Dear friends, I would encourage you as you engage in your relationships with each other, instead of taking the time to complain about the wickedness that you see in so many other things going on in our society around us, take the opportunity to examine your own hearts, confess your own sins that you're struggling with, with, with each other, and seek to encourage each other to fight against the sin that we struggle with, that we would walk in repentance and so honor God with our lives. So friends, deal with the sin in your own life before you begin to deal with the sin in others' lives. Examine your hearts that you would be in Christ. But then notice that David doesn't stop, though, at self-examination. He doesn't stop at merely acknowledging his own sin and asking God to save him from God's wrath that he deserves. He turns and he prays to God that he would judge the wicked. Look at verses 4 through 5 again. Repay them for their deeds and for their evil work. Repay them for what their hands have done and bring back on them what they deserve because they have no regard for the deeds of the Lord and what his hands have done. He will tear them down and never build them up again. I think that this taps into a, a very real feeling and desire that every image bearer made in the image of God, every human being has in their hearts, every human heart. Justice. God, judge wickedness. Hold evil to account. Repay them for what they have done. How long will we see slavery? How long will we see abuse? How long will we see discrimination based off of what people look like or what they're able to do? How long will we see the murder of babies and abortion? How long will we see the strong take advantage of the weak? How long will we see societal robbery through gambling and state lotteries? How long will we see flattery? How long will we see lies and deception, greed, corruption, war? And friends, we could go on and on with the wickedness that we see taking place before us in our society. God's heart is always to see sinners come to repentance, but God will hold all injustice in sin and wickedness to perfect account. And that's what David is recognizing here. Hold wickedness and evil to account even those who perform it and will not repent and believe in you. 
Dale Ralph Davis is a faithful Presbyterian pastor. He writes on this, This may seem too brutal to some of us in the West, who exist in a soft-headed, emotion-dripping, feeling-soaked culture. But a moment's thought tells us that David is doing nothing more than what Paul would later require in Romans chapter 12, verse 19. Don't take vengeance yourselves. Commit vengeance to God. Right? David is teaching us what committing vengeance to God looks like. Praying that he would judge evil according to his perfect standard of righteousness. Davis continues, sometimes, depending on our circumstances, we may think there is nothing that we can do about the ravages of evil and of wicked, wicked men. But Psalm 28 says that we can do something. We can pray. We can pray against them. We can pray that God will punish them. We can pray that God will take them out. Friends, there are times in this world when it seems that evil and wickedness has won. Think of brothers and sisters right now. Right now, in, in this world, the same air that we breathe, brothers and sisters in Christ, suffering in labor camps in China and in North Korea. Even profession Christians who don't even have a right understanding of the gospel, but they claim to be Christians, are even now being persecuted for following Christ, even though they don't even know the gospel. Today, right now, even uh, the Muslim country of Azerbaijan, even today, Sunday, as, as I'm speaking, Azerbaijan is taking possession of areas formerly owned by the Armenians. And as they're coming through, uh, they are committing acts of violence against professing Christians. Many professing Christ have already fled ahead of the Muslim takeover that's happening. And uh, as militant Islam sweeps into this region, wickedness is spreading there. Rejecting God's word, using military force to kill Christians... That's happening. This stuff is happening all across the world right now. We pray for repentance of the wicked, but regardless of the response of sinners, we have rest in the fact that God will hold all wicked men to account. Justice may not come in this life, but as believers, flee. Flee from trusting in the fact that that we can somehow exact perfect justice in this world, even as we seek to pursue justice in this world. Again, we're in an already not yet phase. We're in the world, but not of it. And the president of Azerbaijan has taken the stance of the people that are coming against David here in many ways. He's done exactly what David has described of wicked men here. He has promised peace. Right? When we come in to this region, we will not attack. But Azerbaijan has persecuted Christians for years. It's hard to believe that they aren't harboring malice in their hearts in, in the midst of promises of peace. What can we do in the face of persecution like this? What can brothers and sisters in Christ right now in that region do? Pray that God would repay. Pray that God would repay according to his perfect justice. First examine their own hearts and let their own sin drive them to repentance and casting them on God's mercy in Christ for forgiveness, to flee God's wrath to come through Jesus, and then pray that God would bring wickedness to judgment. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5-10, through 10, it says this, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. 
since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because of our testimony to you, because our testimony to you was believed. Friends, God is the rock of protection of his people. He is the rock, the foundation upon which we stand, that all other ground is sinking sand. He is the only source of sustenance of the living water that wells up to eternal life. But he is also a rock of offense to the wicked. Jesus Christ is the stone that builders have rejected that has become the chief cornerstone. In the parable of the tenants, Jesus taught that he is uh, the stone that the builders rejected, the rock of offense to hypocrites and to the wicked, and that the one who falls on this stone, the one who falls on the stone of Christ, will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Matthew chapter 21, verse 44. Friends, God's judgment is coming. We may think that we can get away with sin and injustice in this world. Wicked men may think that they can get off making wealth off of usurping and using the helpless in this world, taking advantage of the weak. They will not go unpunished. God's wrath, his judgment is coming. So friends, in the midst of this, ensure that you are protected in Christ as your rock, lest the eternal wrath of God, the rock of Christ, fall on you and shatter you to pieces as you bear his eternal wrath in hell forever. And don't take vengeance when you see wickedness in this world. Yes, pursue justice, but commit vengeance to the Lord by praying that he would repay wickedness with perfect equity. Let the reality of God's just wrath for evil, wickedness, and harboring of sinful thoughts in our hearts drive each of us also to repentance. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, true God, true man, to live a sinless life and to die as a substitute for his people upon the cross. Jesus then rose again from the dead three days later to prove that God's justice was satisfied for all of those who would repent and believe in him. God, friends, doesn't repay his people for what their sins deserve. He has saved wicked, vile, evil wretches like us. And he has not treated us as our sins deserve, but he poured out his wrath on Christ in our place. He has repaid what our sins deserve to Jesus, who didn't deserve it. Jesus bore what our sins deserve, and now God has issued an invitation to all men everywhere to submit to his gospel, to turn from their sins and trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Turn and trust in Christ and find that the repayment that we deserve for our sins has fallen upon Christ. Have Christ Turn from a stone of offense to a stone of refuge. If you're here and you're listening today and you're not trusting in Christ, repent. Find him not as a stone of offense, but a stone of protection. A stone of a foundation to stand your feet upon. Find him as a stone of of sustenance and provision. Have Christ. Trust in him. God's wrath is coming, but we can be saved 
from being drug away with the wicked in verse 3, from being repaid for what our sins deserve in verse 4, and being torn down never to be brought up again in verse 5 by the power of the resurrection of Christ. Jesus Christ was drug away with the wicked in his sufferings. He was repaid for what our sins deserve. He was torn down. But friends, he is not a mere man. He is also very God. And he had the power over death that was able to save sinners like us by the power of his coming up again in resurrection. Christ has accomplished for sinners, wicked sinners like us, what we could never accomplish by our own works. And he will come again to judge the living and the dead. Those who die without a saving interest in Christ will be raised to judgment. And then in God's wrath, they will be cast into everlasting torment and hell as a just judgment for their sins, never to rise again. Friends, today flee God's wrath, turn away from your sins, and trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the sake of your salvation and his glory in it. Number three, God is the strength of his people. God is the rock of his people. God will judge the wicked. God is the strength of his people. David started out with lament and prayer of supplication. He turns to confession of sin, then to imprecatory prayer, a turning and a praying for justice. Verses six through eight, he turns to praise. Look at verses six through eight, or six through nine rather. Praise be to the Lord, for he has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him, and he helps me. My heart leaps for joy, and with my song I praise him. The Lord is the strength of his people, a fortress of salvation for his anointed one. Save your people and bless your inheritance. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. What does it mean that God heard David's cry? For mercy. What does that mean? I think it means that everything that we have seen in this song is true. David began in despair. David began by begging God for help. God caused him to remember God's promise to be the rock of his people, that God is merciful to forgive sins, the sins of his people, and that God hears the prayers of his people, that God speaks comfort to his people even when they are surrounded by evil and persecution, and that God will judge wickedness without partiality with perfect justice. God uses the struggle that we face in suffering to remind us of his promises, even as he is doing that here. So even as David is reminded of God's promises as he goes through this struggle of despair and lament, to confession of sin, to praying that God would hold the wicked to account, and now to praise. God has answered David's cry, not necessarily by finally destroying the wicked that he's facing in this moment in his life, or even by making life easier for him, but by comforting David in the midst of the opposition, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of his fears. God has answered David's prayer by reminding him that he is not deaf to David's cries. God hears the cries of his people. He is not silent about the injustice that David faces. And he has designed not to drag David away with the wicked and eternal conscious torment and hell, but to be merciful to David through his covenant promise of a Messiah. The Lord is the strength of his people, and he alone is their shield, their protector. God is worthy of our trust. He helps his people 
by remembering, uh, helping them to remember, to set their hopes on things that are spiritual and eternal, not the things that we see immediately in front of us in this world. God's people may face opposition and persecution, but even in that, our hearts can leap for joy and sing praises to God. Praise God. He's glorified and we get the help. God helps me. You can see him saying that here in the text. God helps his people. The source of our joy isn't what we have. It's not the stuff that we do. And it's not our hope of physical security in the face of threats from enemies in this world. The protection and security that this world offers is not reliable. We don't trust in politicians. We don't trust in chariots and horses or tanks or militaries or even ourselves. When our trust is set in God's salvation, when our trust is set in God's promises, we have an eternal hope that nothing in this world can touch. This is the only sure foundation for our feet. This is the only rock of protection for our heads. This is the only eternal water-giving rock that we have for our sustenance. We can be like the apostles, imprisoned in chains, singing hymns of praise, even while in prison, for the sake of sharing the gospel. We can be like Israel under exile, singing psalms like this one, Psalm 28, in hopeful expectation of the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. We can face the shadow of the valley of death. We can face loneliness. We can face suffering where friends and family are unable to help us. But we can still have an unbreakable, irremovable, never-changing joy because we are saved from God's wrath by the power of the new covenant that he forged that all of God's people have trusted in throughout the ages. It's in this sense that the Lord is the strength of his people. He's reminding them of the things that matter most, reminding them of their greatest need that's fulfilled in the Messiah and the Anointed One in Christ, reminding them of the great inheritance that we have to be with Him forever, the one true and living God for whom we were all made. So friends, today, have the Lord as your strength and your shield. Trust in Him. He will help you when other helpers fail and comforts flee. He is a fortress of salvation for his anointed one. We see that there in verse 8. The Hebrew for anointed one there is the word Messiah or Meshiach. In Greek, that word is translated as Christ. David is talking about himself here. But again, this points us to the consummation of David's kingship and the anointed Messiah that was to come on and sit on David's throne and rule from that throne forever, the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ. As God protects King David, he is saving the lineage from which the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Messiah of Messiahs would come. The salvation of all of God's people is wrapped up with God saving David here, with God being David's help here, with God being David's rock here, with God's saving David from sweeping him away in his judgment upon the wicked. As God strengthens David by his covenant promises to him, God is blessing God's inheritance. By fulfilling his promises to David, God will establish himself as a shepherd, as a pastor over his people, and he will carry them, even as a faithful shepherd carries the wounded and helpless sheep on his shoulders home. Friends, as we close, give praise to God for keeping his promises. Praise God for giving us access through Christ to the help that David 
finds here in this text. We praise God that our help doesn't come from ourselves, but it comes from the Lord. Praise God that he helps us. Praise God that he is merciful. Praise God that he is gracious. Praise God that he is a loving shepherd. I'll close with some of the lines from the hymn, The King of Love. Just listen to them as I read. This is a, an application of Psalm 23 fulfilled in Christ. The King of Love, my shepherd is, whose goodness faileth never. I nothing lack if I am his, and he is mine forever. Where streams of living water flow, my ransomed soul he leadeth. And where the verdant pastures grow, with food celestial feedeth. Perverse and foolish oft I strayed, but yet in love he sought me, and on his shoulder gently laid, and home rejoicing brought me. In death's dark veil I fear no ill, with thee, dear Lord, beside me. Thy rod and staff my comfort still, my cross, thy cross, before to guide me. Thou spreadst a table in my sight, thy unction or action, uh, action of coming to this table, thine unction grace bestoweth. And oh, what transport of delight from thy pure chalice floweth. And so through all the length of days, thy goodness, faith never, faileth never. Good shepherd, may I sing thy praise within thy house forever. Brothers and sisters, as we close, in life's alarms, turn from your sins. Trust in Christ. Return to the shepherd and overseer of your souls and trust that he will throw you on his shoulders and bring you safely through to his eternal kingdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a help to your people, that you are the rock to your people, that you are a God who judges justly. Father, we pray that you would help us to consider the truth that we see in this text. We pray that you would cut our hearts of, to repent and believe in Christ. And we pray that you would be glorified uh, to help us, even in the midst of our weaknesses in this world and in the midst of the troubles that we face. We pray that you would be glorified and that we would get the help. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.